with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for giving us everything we need, everything for living day to day, for godliness, to have wisdom, to understand the times in which we live. Thank you for this magnificent gift, your word. This evening, Lord God, please help me to teach from Revelation chapters 18 and 19 uh, properly and capably and clearly. And Lord, may we take these things to heart and not be afraid, but if anything, Lord God, be strengthened for the days that are coming. We thank you in advance for the work that you're doing in our lives through your spirit tonight. In Yeshua's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, if Ossalie is watching, I don't know if she's watching, I got my water and I got my glasses. So already we're ahead of the game. All right, so I entitled tonight's study, A Lamb Waging War. Whoever heard of uh, the wrath of a lamb or a lamb waging war? It just, you don't picture that. You picture a little lammy, right? Um, kind of like in the old Monty Python movie with the little rabbit that looks so innocent, but it's the killer rabbit. You know, it's like, okay. So it's paradoxical to think of Yeshua, who was quiet, gentle, carpenter, turned rabbi from Nazareth, as the same one who is going to come out of the cosmos, right? And uh, descend from heaven on a white horse, accompanied by a great army, bearing a sword, uh, in order to vanquish the kings of the earth and reign over the nations. And it says he'll reign, at least for a time, with a rod of iron. You know, it's very interesting. At the, at, when Yeshua came the first time, everybody was, you know, the Jewish people were living under the yoke of Roman tyranny. I mean, it was really oppressive. And what the Jewish people hoped for in a Messiah at that time was a warrior king. Someone who will come and defeat the Romans and give Israel back our sovereignty. And what we got was a quiet carpenter turned rabbi whose teaching was, would tra transform lives, but he wasn't here to overthrow the government of Rome. And here we are at the outset of the 21st century, and what people seem to want when the Messiah comes is the gentle, surfer, peacenik, groovy, right, Jesus. But this time, we're getting the warrior. Interesting, that juxtaposition. They wanted a warrior, they got a savior. We want a gentle, sweet, innocuous savior. We're getting a warrior. So it's kind of paradoxical. Now think about this for John. John spent three years walking and traveling with Yeshua everywhere he went. And this was the life of a disciple of a rabbi at that time. If you were, if you were a disciple of an itinerant rabbi, um, you went where they went. You ate where they ate. You did what they did. You, and you learned as you went. And so they, he spent three years 
walking and talking and taking meals with Yeshua, going town to town, seeing miracles, but generally it's just Yeshua, right? In his full humanity until they went on the Mount of Transfiguration. Then he had just a glimpse of the glory of the kingdom to come, right? That's why Yeshua said, there are some of you who are standing here who will not see death before they see the Son of Man coming in his glory, right? And they did just a few days later. Uh, some of those standing there, Peter, James, and John, did see him come in his glory. So, And that was just a little foretaste. Let me uh, take a moment. We've Wow, we've got 32 people watching online, and probably more than that because... Uh, I don't even know. But let me say hello to uh, Marianne, to um, Steve, to my dear brother Alan out in New Jersey, uh, to Patsy, uh, to Kina, who says good evening to everybody, to Mike, Michael. Um, shalom to you, brother. All right. So... So it's, a, it's, it's kind of a juxtaposition. It seems like a paradox that the quiet, gentle Messiah is coming back in all of his power and glory. And tonight, once we hit chapter 19, it's very interesting. We have a, both a wedding and a war. In one chapter, a wedding and a war. But first, I want to kind of review a few things about chapter 18. Not that Rabbi Jerry left anything uh, out. I just wanted to share a perspective that I have about this woman, also known as Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. My contention is that Babylon is both a city and, separately speaking, an institution. The city of Rome, which, by the way, in 1 Peter, Peter sends greetings from, his, from everybody's brothers in Babylon. He doesn't mean Babylon. He was in Rome. Babylon was a code name for Rome among the Jewish people. Because <clears throat> basically Babylon represented uh, oppression, pride, arrogance, defiance, right? Defiance against God, and Rome certainly embodied that. But the woman who is called Babylon, the mother of harlots, is also called a harlot. And in the Jewish mindset, bear in mind this is a Jewish book, in the Jewish mindset a harlot is somebody who ought to have been faithful and committed adultery. Right? Committed adultery. Even if it, she wasn't selling herself like a, we think of a prostitute, She's called a harlot for stepping out on her husband. So Israel was at, at one point likened to a harlot because of her infidelity to Adonai. So you wouldn't think of Rome as a harlot because Rome never had a relationship with the Lord. The Roman Empire had nothing to do with the God of Israel. So how is it that this one is called a harlot? indicating that someone who ought to have been faithful but wasn't. Then we learn more in chapter 18 about the harlot. By the way, if you look at chapter 17, uh, this harlot, 
Rome described as a woman, verse 4, 17.4, woman clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Yeshua. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. John was astonished. Now, he wouldn't have been astonished if this was simply Rome, because what's the surprise there? Rome had been persecuting Christians and Jews. This is someone described as a harlot, somebody who ought to be faithful to God and is not, and is actually drunk with the blood of the saints. Who would that be? Well, we're told uh, later on that um, the woman, let's see. Look at, uh, again, we're in 17. Look at verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings, and it goes on to five have come, you know, five have fallen, one has not. Um, And it talks about these kings, verse 14, waging war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome him, come them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. You know how I've been saying that we're, I think we're coming back to fight with him. Are we not the called and the chosen and the faithful? So yeah, get ready to fight. All right. Um, All right. Uh, And so we come to chapter 18 and we hear more about this woman, this Harlot, who is also called Babylon. Uh, verse 2, 18-2, And he cried out with a mighty voice, one of the angels, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now I'm going back to 18 and reviewing a few things, because when we get to 19, here it is again, after these things, 19-1 and following, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And then verse 3, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. You don't think of people saying Hallelujah, destruction, but it's the destruction of this woman, this, this Babylon, this harlot. And this woman riding on the beast, so the beast represents the civil powers, right? That unity of those nations, right? Under the authority of the beast. But you have this woman riding the beast. And she is the one who is called Babylon. She is the one who is called a harlot, indicating that there's something about this woman that this is, this institution, whatever it is, ought to have been faithful to the Lord, but was not. And John is astonished. And I think it is because the woman is the Roman Catholic Church. 
roam the city, and you've got the whole confederation of kings under the rule of the beast who will rule from Rome. But you have this woman, clothed in scarlet and purple. You ever looked at the uh, Roman Catholic hierarchy? Archbishops, popes, etc. They are dressed in scarlet and purple. And of course, the Pope has the beautiful golden chalice. And I'm not going to go into gory detail. I will just tell you that on the order of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of sincere Christians were put to death over a period of centuries by none other than the Roman Catholic Church. And we read in chapters 17 and 18 about how this woman is like um, carries on with the kings of the earth and has dealings and, and, and deals going with the kings of the earth. Well, who else would it be? If you look at the history of the Roman Catholic Church, you have all these dealings. The popes literally could take down kings and set up kings and did and put hundreds, tens at least, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Christians to death. If you disagreed with anything that the Pope said, even if somebody accused you of having said something against anything papal, just on the accusation during the time of the Inquisitions, you would be brought to the Inquisitor, and you would not survive it. They would torture you until you confess to anything and everything just to end the torture. Uh, the history of the Roman Catholic Church is a very violent, corrupt, bloody history. So you're thinking, how is it that this woman is drunk with the blood of the saints? There you go. And of course, the city sits on seven hills. Rome is known as the city of seven hills. Again, Peter in 1 Peter sends greetings from Babylon, which is code for Rome. And so what we have is at the end of time, Rome will be more than just Vatican City and a, a cool place to go and look at history and visit the Colosseum and blah, blah, blah. It's going to become a center of power again, if I'm understanding this correctly. And I am subject to error. Um, but there's too much here that to, to just dismiss it. And nobody else fits the bill. Nobody else would be called a harlot because the church, and I'm going to put quotes around that, ought to be the faithful, pure bride of Messiah. And it was anything but that. Um, I don't recommend reading this book after you've had a nice big meal. It'll just make you sick. But if, if you want to know the history of the Roman Catholic Church and why it fits exactly the description of the woman in Revelation. This book by Dave Hunt is called A Woman Rides the Beast. Um, not pretty, but anyway, so I wanted to bring that up because in your own reading as you go back through chapter 17 and 18, um, and the more you study the history, of Roman Catholicism, I think the more it fits. And so what it will appear to be is that Roman Catholicism will gain in ascendancy. I mean, it's, it's already 
in inordinately huge and wealthy and large and corrupt. And corrupt. Um, and it appears from these chapters of Revelation that for a period of time, the beast will have some kind of an alliance going, right? She's riding on the beast. There's a cooperative relationship there. At some point, the Antichrist and the Confederation of Kings are going to turn on the church, are going to turn on the woman, the Roman Catholic Church, which will have served its purpose and is no longer useful and turns on them. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to kind of just mention some of these things. Uh, if you look at chapter 18, verse 9, it says, And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Um, there are various theories about who the harlot is, who the woman is. Some have suggested Jerusalem, but Jerusalem never had international dealings, doing deals with kings and making international deals. I mean, it's been a source of contention, but it's never been like this wealthy city, powerful city. I mean, the only time Jerusalem was ever really powerful was in the dynasties of David and Solomon. That's it. So um, anyway, um, so um, and, and, and again, just I, I encourage you to go back and look at the, uh, the description. You know, the woman sits on, the city sits on many waters. If you look at Rome, where it is, the boot of Italy, surrounded by waters, and so you can understand a lot of commerce coming and going. So apparently what we have, and it, it's, it's what I tend to believe, and again, I could be wrong, but I tend to believe what we're going to have is, at the very end of time, for a short period of time, a very powerful, revived Roman Empire or Roman Republic, which will for a short period of time be working together with the Roman Catholic Church. And then once the Roman Catholic Church has served its purpose, will be persecuted uh, and, and attacked. So that's my thinking on that. So we come to chapter 19. Let me just check my notes here. I'm probably stepping on some toes. It's, I'm not intending to offend anybody, but there it fits the bill to a T. The more you study it out. And again, the book is Dave Hunt, A Woman Rides the Beast. I do recommend it. This is an older version. It's been updated with a whole lot more information, and, and it's highly documented. It's very, very well documented. All right. Let's see. Uh, but again, it's going to be more than just the institution. It is a symbiosis of, of, of the city-state, a secular city-state, the power of the Antichrist who is empowered by Satan, working for a time cooperatively with the worldwide Roman Catholic Church. So, all right. So let's go to chapter 19. And welcome to, uh, let's see, Sarah. And let's see, Sarah and Alan and Helena. 
All right. Chapter 19, let's go on. And I know there's conversation going on online, but let's, uh, let's all come together now and look at chapter 19. And let's look at verses 1 through 4 to start out. After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. We have a word for this. This is called a doxology, right? Doxa, worthy, right? And logos, word. So doxology, worthy words. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And here's a key verse here. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. Wow. So we're saying hallelujah at how good God is. And we're saying hallelujah because he's now avenging, right? He's vindicating his people. His people will be vindicated in that day. And the loud sound, it says, is the sound of a multitude in heaven, a great multitude in heaven. Um, I think that's God's people together with the angels, not just angels. I think it's God's people. And, of course, their exclamation is very Godward. It's God-centered. God's glory, right? Salvation, power, glory belong to our God. His attributes, right? It's declaring what he is like, right? His judgments are true and righteous. And then his deeds, for he has judged the great harlot and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. So this woman, this harlot, will be, will be destroyed, right? Punished because of the persecution of the saints. I think this is why John is astonished. How can she, who was supposed to be the bride of Christ, actually be murdering his people right and left? How can it be? Note, too, the relationship between the proliferation of immorality and hostility directed at God's people, right, um, resulting in their martyrdom. Immorality is, is almost never morally neutral. You know, people will say, oh, just you do your thing, I'll do my thing. Just as soon as you say, yeah, but what your thing is sin. Oh. Immorality is not moral neutrality. It is hostile towards God and God's people. Immorality, while touting itself as tolerant, is itself intolerant should anybody suggest that there are moral absolutes, unambiguous right and wrongs. Uh, every so often you'll see it. Somebody say, there are no absolutes. Is that statement absolute? Right? There's no absolutes. Well, you just made an absolute statement, so you just literally destroyed your own statement. Or maybe there are some absolutes. You just don't like them. 
The sexually perverted men of Sodom are a perfect paradigm. They weren't just loose of morals. First of all, nobody there offered those two angels a place to stay for the night. They came appearing to be men. And nobody took them in. And hospitality was sac a sacred thing. Nobody said, do you have a place to stay? Come, stay with us, right? Nobody did that. And then they not only came to Lot's house and wanted to get it on with these men, but uh, as soon as Lot said something like, please don't do this. Don't, don't do this evil. These men have come to me as guests. And what did they do? They turned on him. Now we're going to treat you worse than them, right? So they weren't just loose of morals. They were ready to murder Lot and everyone in his house for failing to comply with their demands. So whether the great harlot's destruction literally causes et eternal smoke to ascend. And by the way, where is up in heaven? Where smoke goes up forever and ever. Where is up in him? Or whether it's simply uh, an emotive description of joy, right? Joy at the final end of ungodliness and the ushering in of peace. I mean, that's a point of debate. But the point is that God's judgment on this great harlot evokes praise from everybody, including the 24 elders, the four living creatures, that's why I find it so egregious that anybody would think to interpret the harlot to be Israel or that Babylon would be Israel. It's more than just anti-Semitic. It's anti-God. It's antithetical to the whole revealed purpose and plan of God, which is to restore and bless his people Israel in the last days. So and to make one new man of Jew and Gentile alike. So if we're to believe that the great harlot is Israel, then according to chapter 18, Israel would be annihilated. And in chapter 19, everybody would be happy that Israel was annihilated. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. All right, a fourfold hallelujah. And so it begins and ends by declaring God's sovereignty. Let's look at verses 5 through 9. All right. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Write. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Wow. Want to say hello to Peggy, who's tuned in. Welcome. Good to have you with us. Uh, we're in Revelation 19. Uh, we just finished verses 5 through 9. Um, 
So the praises in heaven are, you notice they're, 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 the praises come antiphonally, right? They're saying praise him for this over here, and it's like they're praising him over here. I think of Isaiah chapter 6, the cherubim speak and their voice thunder, and then the seraphim speak. It's what we call antiphonal. Uh, praise ascends for him from one group of beings and is answered with praise from another group of beings. This is why the forms of worship, both within Judaism and Judaism and in some high church services, uh, is antiphonal. I remember in the synagogue where I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, it, it was a very large synagogue and there was a, I guess we would call it a chancellery or whatever, but there was a, a room over here on this side and there were like tall windows, like not windows, but openings just like these, but there was a veil. So you couldn't see who was back there, but voices came. And there were the same thing on that side and a veil and voices came from that side. And as a kid, I just couldn't appreciate it. But not too long after I became a believer, uh, I went back and visited my hometown synagogue and sat in on a Shabbat service. And on the one hand, I was sad because here's all these people who just, they're just going through the motions and they didn't even seem to be really paying attention. Yet on the other hand, I was reveling in the actual worship. It was just, it was an amazing thing. So can you just imagine what it's going to be like in heaven? The, the praise of it all. Um, so we are imitating when we do this what we perceive to be the mode of worship in the heavenlies. An example for us, and you guys are familiar with it, those of you who come to Shema, whenever we have uh, we bring out the Torah and we have a Torah reading, there's a blessing before and a blessing after. And the blessing before is, bless the Lord who is blessed. And then what is the response? from everybody. Blessed be the Lord who is blessed forever and ever. Then the reader says, blessed be the Lord who is blessed forever and ever. And then together we say, blessed and praised, right? So, uh, blessed are you, O Lord, King of, our God, King of the universe. So, uh, the cause for praise and rejoicing here in chapter 19 is not only in the final destruction of Babylon, the great harlot, but in the consummation of the ages, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Wickedness is gone. Righteousness comes in. It's the beginning of new things. It's a beautiful, a beautiful thing. And what could be better than a wedding, right? It's a Jewish wedding, right? Okay, anyway. Um, I have, for a long time, I have really thought that you know, the intent behind the words, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted from the, from the Beatitudes, had not as much to do with mourning when somebody you love dies, but those of us who we see the world that God created and what it ought to be and what it is. And we grieve, right? We mourn the, the fallen, broken condition of the world. We yearn for Messiah to come back. I think that's what it means to be blessed in our mourning. All right. Okay. So when the appointed time comes and God judges the earth in righteousness, those who have suffered unjustly, remember, this is the saints being vindicated, right? He's avenged the blood of his saints. 
And when that time comes, those who have suffered unjustly, those who have been persecuted, insulted, sometimes killed for Yeshua's sake will be comforted and vindicated. Now, in this marriage, the Lamb, Messiah Yeshua, is the bridegroom. And this, of course, goes right along with Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 22. Both of those places, Yeshua uses the imagery of the bridegroom with reference to himself. And John chapter 3, verse 29, where John the Baptist refers to Yeshua as the bridegroom. And of course, Paul affirms this imagery in 2 Corinthians 11.2 and again in Ephesians chapter 5. Yeshua's followers are his bride. He, Messiah, is the bridegroom. Now, there's been some discussion about uh, who's who in Revelation 19. Nobody, uh, nobody argues or, or would disagree that Yeshua, the lamb, is the bridegroom. Everybody agrees on that. But some argue that the bride is not to be confused with those invited to the marriage supper. Because blessed is everyone who's invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, Ryrie and Walford, for example, make a sharp distinction between the bride, verse 7, and the invited guests, verse 9. Okay? In earthly terms, it seems a legitimate distinction, right? People who are invited to the wedding are, are not the bride, but the, or the groom, but the family and friends. So, yeah, in an earthly sense, but this is not an earthly wedding. Um, and it creates a paradox of sorts. If the invited guests of verse 9 are not the bride, the church, and yet they are saved, because blessed is everyone who is invited to the marriage supper, um, it leaves us with two possibilities. It's either Israel, which I suppose is plausible, but I disagree. Um, uh, for reasons that I'll share. Uh, or else the guests are the saints of ages past and future from John's perspective. Many classical dispensationalists see an eternal distinction between Israel and the church. This is a difficulty for me because did he not create from the two one new man? Right? So in a very real sense, we are Israel and we are the church. Right? In, in a sense. But, you know, by birth, I'm part of Israel. By faith, I'm part of the church. Um, so if, if everything's separated in eternity and you got that group and you got that group, where do I go? Am I going to have to choose between them? I tend to take the view of George Eldon Ladd and Robert Mounts who argue that those who are blessed to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb are the same as those who comprise the bride. Okay? And of course, in the earthly realm, there are obvious distinctions between wedding guests and the bride, but this is not an earthly wedding, and this is, after all, apocalyptic literature, for which we must allow you know, room for the uniqueness of interpretation. I was going to quote Lad. I'm not going to. Let's go on. All right. So just as the Messiah is the shepherd of the sheep, but he's also the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, he's a lamb and he's a lion. He's a shepherd. He's a warrior. 
You can be two things. Okay. So the church is both the bride and those invited. All right. Oh, I forgot to print it out. There are seven Beatitudes in Revelation, by the way. There, there are seven instances of where it says, blessed are those, or right? The seven Beatitudes. Um, Rabbi Jerry, if you'll remind me, I will send you when I get home, and then if you can make it available, uh, the seven Beatitudes of Revelation. Uh, the Greek word, in Hebrew, if it was in the Old Testament, it would have been the word ashrei, happy, blessed, uh, enviable. In Greek, it's makarios, happy, blessed. And here in chapter 19, verse 9, we have number four out of the seven. So look again at verse 9. Then he said to me, write, makarios, happy, blessed, enviable are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. A wedding is one of the most joyful and significant events you can experience on earth. It's, not, it's the union of a man and a woman pledged to each other exclusively for all time. By the way, those of you who are going to be here Saturday, this coming Shabbat, if you can stick around after the service, you are going to witness a wedding of uh, Mike and Stephanie. It's an amazing event, particularly when the bride and bridegroom are united in a common faith in Messiah and they've conducted themselves properly leading up to that time. And especially when God and his word are honored and given priority in that wedding. There's just nothing like a wedding. That's why again and again in the scriptures, we have, uh, as we've said, Messiah Yeshua is likened to the bridegroom, and we, his people, are the bride. Um, we are betrothed to him, but the wedding itself takes place outside of time. So, I mean, as great as a wedding is, and, and a Jewish wedding is like really amazing and fun, right? But we can't even begin to imagine the joy of that wedding to take place. It's just going to be amazing. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, where did I? Okay, here we go. Here we go. Verse 10. All right, verse 10. By the way, welcome to my brother Gary out in Florida and to my dear sister Erin, uh, who's watching. All right, glad to have you guys watching. Um, verse 10. And I, this is John now speaking, and I fell at his feet to worship him. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the angel that's been showing him everything. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said, don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Yeshua. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus, Yeshua, is the spirit of prophecy. Every time human beings encounter angels, we are absolutely overwhelmed, right? Usually when a human being, when we read about it in the Bible, encounters an angel, they fall on their face. Um, you've heard me say it. Angels are not going to look like the little baby-faced cherubs on your coffee mug. 
I dare say they are enormous beings. And we probably would fall down before them too. And he says, I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, do not do that. You know, in, in, the, uh, in the Lord of the Rings, I'm just going to get Alexandra's attention. In the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king, when Aragorn is crowned, and then when he's betrothed, right, to Arwen, right, um, everybody's there for this coronation and wedding, right? Tolkien really understood the enormity of it. And do you remember what happens? Everybody bows, right, to the king. And as the king and his bride are, are processing, they come to uh, Frodo and his friends, right, the hobbits, who are really little by comparison. And they bow to Aragorn, and he says, no, my friends, you bow to no one. Right? The little hobbits are like one fourth the size of the earth men, right? And yet, little as they are, they carry greater weight because it was one of those sons of Adam that finally destroyed the ring. Oh, you know the story. Anyway, the point is, angels are enormous beings. And from what I can tell from the descriptions in Scripture, light-bearing beings, right? They're just, like it would just about blind you and you'd be on your face. And yet, in the purview of God, we are the ones that are not greater, I'm not saying greater in stature, but they serve us. And together we serve God. Can you imagine buddying up with an angel? Like you got a friend who's you know, 17 feet high. And he's your friend. And together you're serving God. It's always nice to have big friends. I'm a little Jewish guy. Um, I like having big friends. And I, and I have some big friends. All right. Okay. So the one John falls down before is the one whose voice is described in verse 5 as coming from the throne and again speaks to him in verse 9. He is unquestionably the angelic being. This is confirmed in chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, where the same thing happens. <laughs> and this he falls down again to worship. And the one he before whom he falls, is specifically described as an angel. And again, John is told, don't do that. Stop that. Stop it. Get up. He's told not to do that. Angels are not to be worshipped. No one. Nothing. Only God himself, right? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit uh, are to be worshipped. Um, that's why it's all the more significant that Yeshua accepted worship, even while he was on earth. He accepted worship. And in Revelation, he's given titles that are the equivalent of what we say about God the Father. And he's given adulation. 
and all glory to the Lamb. It's, it's very significant. Um, I want you to take a little left turn with me and go back to chapter 4 for just a minute. I want to look at two, two passages in chapters 4 and 5. We're not going to finish chapter 19 tonight. So Rabbi Jerry gets to have the, the fighting, the war. He gets that part. All right. Chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. The Father, right? Now look at chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. And you have these myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and earth and on, on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So he receives honor and adulation equal to that of the Father. And again, notice that the angel calls himself a fellow servant of John's and his brothers. Um, does that mean that angels are servants of God along with us, or is the angel saying that he is John's servant? And should we understand that angels are our servants? I think it's both. We have in Scripture that angels are appointed for the sake of the elect, right, to help. So, yes, they are serving us, but together we all serve the living God. So I asked a question here in my notes. Does it strike you as incongruous that beings of such enormity, power, and light should be our servants? Wouldn't it be more comfortable to think of angels, uh, you know, as servants of God rather than servants of the saints? And I don't think it's one or the other. Um, but I think first and foremost, they're servants of God, right? We happen to be the blessed beneficiaries of the service they render to him. Um, so think about it. John is a wise and godly man. He's an, age, he's an old man at this point. He's not that, you know, 19, 20, 21-year-old disciple of Yeshua. He's an old man at this point. He's on the island of Patmos. And um, if a wise and godly man like Yochanan still fell at the feet of the angel, you've got to figure they must be incredible to behold. So, But if angels are not to be worshipped, how much more are we to be cautioned against venerating fellow human beings, as is the practice of some, both in allegedly Christian and pagan traditions? It takes different kinds of forms, ancestor worship in some cultures, veneration of saints, avatar worship, prayers offered to deceased people. It's forbidden in the Ten Commandments and throughout the scriptures. God alone 
is to be worshipped. Yeshua is God the Son, through whom all things were created, and thus he is worthy of our worship. And then he says, for the testimony of Jesus, Yeshua, is the spirit of prophecy. Now, most scholars take this rather cryptic saying to mean that all prophecy pointed to the coming of the Messiah, and that Yeshua fulfilled in himself all that the prophets had said. So to hold to the testimony of Yeshua means to acknowledge and to acknowledge publicly that he is the promised Messiah. He is the one of whom Moses and the other prophets spoke and wrote thousands of years ago. All right. I'm reluctant to get too much farther because once we hit verse 11, it's the... It's Yeshua coming back on the white horse and the armies. and I, I don't want to take away from the fun that I know Jerry, Rabbi Jerry will have teaching on that. So let's pause there. We'll, God willing, uh, next week, Wednesday, um, Rabbi Jerry will pick up at verse 11. But let's talk about what we've read so far, some thoughts that perhaps you've had uh, through all of this. This is a lot, isn't it? Just in these 10 verses, there's a lot there. Any thoughts about it? Everybody's quiet here. Let's see if uh, some of you watching online have any questions, thoughts about this. Uh, let's see. Um, not yet, but by the way, welcome to Jody and to Raymond. All right, and and Tamara, and let's see. All right, okay, no no questions online. Um, but again, this we one thing that I will caution us again. This is this is Jewish apocalyptic literature, so. <clears throat> not everything proceeds in a linear fashion. Something you read in chapter 6, for example, might actually be unpacked in chapter 14 or 15, right? You were getting it in kind of a summary form back here, and then it's unpacked in its details later on. That's a very Jewish way of writing. I forget what they call it. Maybe one of you guys know uh, the little toys uh, where you've got the, it's made out of wood, and it's a, a Swedish-looking woman, a motherly-looking woman. You open it up, and there's a smaller one. And you open that up, and there's a smaller one. What is it called? Nesting doll? A Russian or whatever. You know what I'm talking about, right? This is kind of how you might want to look at the way things uh, play out in Revelation. It's not necessarily linear. linear. You've got kind of an overview right? The horsemen, right? But then it's actually played out in later chapters. So you open it up and, oh, that's how that's playing out. But then within that, there's, there's more. So, And so here in chapter 19, on the one hand, Babylon is no more. Hallelujah, right? Babylon is no more. And yet, as we come to the middle of chapter 19, and next week as Rabbi Jerry's going to teach, this is going to talk about the war, 
So it's like, think of it like, you know, a movie. The movie director has you, you know, what's happening back at the ranch between the family members? And then what's happening out on the range where the bad guys are coming and, you know, stuff's going on out there. Meantime, in town, the sheriff's got to get his posse together and come out. Then we're back at the house. They're, what are we going to do? And then they're out on the written seat. Think of it that way. Scenes within a movie. Things are happening concurrently. The movie is proceeding linear time, but sometimes you're going back. And sometimes the director uh, in the movie is taking you back 10 years to what happened to contextualize what was just said a moment ago, right? This is how Jewish apocalypse sometimes works. Things are presented in a general way here. They're unpacked over here. We're going back to that theme over there, and then we're skipping way ahead to the end, right, where it culminates. So got to bear in mind, not everything is linear. So things we've been reading in chapter 17 and 18, and then the destruction of Babylon, right, in chapter 18. Uh, later in chapter 19, we're coming back to that, and the war takes place, Messiah and the Holy Ones with him. Okay, we had a question. Well, once you get, now next week, as you look at the chap, uh, verses 11 and following, it's Messiah coming back to render judgment. So it's, it's, it's one of those, in prophecy, it's what we call already, not yet. It's been decreed, therefore it's already. It's a done deal. And yet, in time and space, we're living it out in linear time. So John is seeing this in the eternal realm. Oh, the bowls and such. Um, yes. Yes, I believe, I believe the bowls have, are finished. Now we, have, now we have the return of Messiah. And again, he's coming in power and in glory. They wanted a, a warrior back in the first century. They got a lamb. We want a lamby, a lamby, meek and mild. We're getting the warrior. It's like in the first coming, people did not get what they wanted or what they expected. Second coming, people are not going to get what they expected. It's going to be a very rude awakening for a lot of people. Yeah, Tom. You know, the question is, okay, if the bride isn't the church, who would it be? There, there really is no explanation. You have to go through all kinds of, I don't know, hermeneutical gymnastics to try to get around that. Uh, again, we are the bride, but we are invited to that wedding piece, just that we happen to be part of the bride. Yeah, Brian. Right. Right. So let me let me repeat what you're saying for those who won't have heard a single thing that you said. Um, it says, you know, in verse nine, right? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper, and 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 it, and they say, in verse nine, uh, and he said to me, the angel said, these are true true words of God. Uh, what does that mean? Are there false words of God elsewhere? No. It's an emphasis. 
It's just for emphasis. Paul, for example, in Romans 11 says, I'm telling the truth in Messiah. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit. Well, was he lying somewhere else? No, but what he's about to say is of such weight that he wants to assure us that he's speaking truthfully. And what is it that he says? I would be willing to be cut off for all eternity if somehow my life could could bring about the salvation of all of Israel. It can't, and he knows that, but he said, I would willingly give my eternal soul if it would bring about the salvation of Israel. This is why he has to say, I am telling the truth in Messiah. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness. I would be willing to do that because of the enormity of what he's saying. And the enormity of what's being said here is this is the consummation of the ages, right? The marriage of all marriages, the wedding of all weddings to take place. And uh, so when he says, uh, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's like, that's an understatement. Because the Greek word makarios is just, it just doesn't quite convey it. And no human word could. There's nothing wrong with the Greek language. It's just, how can you possibly convey in earthly language the glories of what we're going to see when we're in heaven? So, all right, it is that time. I want to thank you for uh, those of you who've been watching. We had like 40 people watching, uh, at least on Facebook, maybe more on YouTube. Um, Next week, Rabbi Jerry is scheduled to teach and should be picking up at chapter 19, verse 11. Um, And boy, it's going to be amazing. I'm sure it's going to be very, very interesting. Let's pray. Lord, our God and God of our ancestors, we thank you that though time to you is is like the blink of an eye, it's a blip. We live, Lord God, as it were in slow motion, day by day and hour by hour. And we're so easily entranced and distracted by trivialities here in this world, upset by little stuff. Um, And we forget so easily the big picture. Thank you for tonight's study and thank you for this passage of scripture reminding us of the great and glorious things to come. And the greatest of all, to see you face to face, to be in your presence. So we thank you, Lord God, for our time together this evening. I thank you for those who are here I thank you for those who've been watching. For those driving, Lord God, please give everybody safe travels home. And we thank you for all that you're doing in our midst. We give you the praise and just sort of a a dress rehearsal for the greater praise and doxologies to come when we're with you. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thanks, you guys. Have a good evening.